You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 244. I'm your host, Andrej Spinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey, son, hey, son. Woo, I'm back. Woohoo. You're back. Good to have you back. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm back. Good. How are I'm you? Ba- no, no, no. That's a different song. <laughs> right, right. How have you been? We missed you. Yeah, we did. Indeed. <laughs> good, good, good. I've been busy, busy. <laughs> What with? We've had our first uh, uh, Swedish skeptics in the pub online uh, event on last uh, Wednesday. Or a week from Wednesday, when you as you listen to that, hasn't that hasn't that oh yeah, happened yes. in already like back in May or something? You're you're <laughs> quite right. Your memory is very good, but okay. I didn't count that. It was a test run, but <gasps> now we had right. a. Uh, gotcha. It was more proper, if if you will, and now we've also started booking, so we'll do it every month. <laughs> nice. So uh, it'll be it'll be interesting. It was fun uh, doing a lot of uh, technical stuff at the same time as i was interviewing the speaker so that was interesting but it worked out so it wasn't a, it wasn't an actual talk it was like an uh, interview like a conversation no it was a talk but then there were uh, you could uh, okay the, the the audience could could log questions ah, okay. and then i came back after a break and, and asked the question just the same concept as they're doing in the in the uk and it worked very well So, nice good to hear sounds that. good good to hear that yeah <laughs> but what you know another thing that i found out last week is that my neighbors and i don't think they're listening to the show they are importing and selling homeopathic remedies and i was like oh no they seemed so such <laughs> like such nice people and then then they have to ru- ruin it all <laughs> they're still nice people but it just ugh. <laughs> Mm. destroyed our goodwill of the community yeah they they lost my respect in in certain ways that was easy yeah right yeah what wasn't that easy is um trying to find uh well i wouldn't say a loophole but some kind of a way for our uh organization the hungarian skeptics to hold our general assembly that is really really do by now online because mm. unfortunately by law as long as you have it written in your constitution that uh, you can hold general assemblies online then you're okay and there was a period this year uh, during the time of special legal situation uh, across the country when all these non-profit organizations and the ngos were allowed to do that even if if it wasn't included in the constitution but now we finally found the way so in the next two weeks or at some point we will have our general assembly and we need to re-elect all the the board as well so there will be changes and unfortunately gabor you know gabor gabor Roshko, absolutely yes he says that he's going to resign so he's not going to run for re-election So uh, changes are coming, probably. Exciting stuff. Exciting, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, obviously, I will report on what the outcome of the things are, but I, I'm not going to bore you with the details as of now. But uh, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to mention that. These are the issues that we are facing. And a couple of uh, COVID-19 deniers as well that we are fighting against. Um, uh, and they are gaining more and more ground. But I will cover that a little bit later on the news segment. So what else has happened? Onika, what have you been up to? <laughs> well, I'm happy, <laughs> but I've actually been really, really excited to see the the names of the Nobel Prizes, receive, who will receive the Nobel Prizes. Yes, a yeah. couple of good ones. Yeah, exactly. I think it's like the nominations or more like the receivers. Together, it's just a big step for Europe and also for women, I have to say. Mm. I mean, the Nobel Prize for physics, for example, went to Sir Roger Penrose from the UK, The Nobel Prize for Chemistry will go to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, two women, yes, <laughs> for their discovery uh, of CRISPR and Cas9. Mm-hmm. Woohoo! And and uh, Emmanuel Charpentier, she actually made her discoveries in uh, while at the Swedish university. So woohoo! Yeah, go Sweden. In science, you cannot <laughs> you cannot do anything without uh, Sweden getting involved. That's, uh, we, that's we do our best. We do our best. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah and apparently she now works in berlin so she's also like a very european person in that regard mm -hmm. yeah and i have to say i always should love to see that because this is also such a great signal for young girls to to see that you can be a scientist <laughs> yes you don't have to be like the old right. guy with the mustache and the hair <laughs> like the the wild hair <laughs> you can have wild hair but you don't have yeah. to be a guy yes exactly you, you can be a scientist however you you look <laughs> yeah it's, it's very important to get those role models out there yeah yeah And I mean, it's also important to say that science takes teamwork. So yeah. like the prices are always also something for the whole community of like chemistry or physics, as it is um, not only to the um, outstanding individuals the prices actually go to. It's really like this whole um, standing on the shoulders of giant thing, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. you couldn't do it without the team of scientists you actually have. Yeah, and the, for for example, the the team that got the physiology and medicine, there are three of them. Uh, one of them is European for um, the discovery of um, hepatitis C, and uh, that's a pretty significant achievement as well. Right. Mm. I think overall it was quite understandable yeah. discoveries that got awarded this year. It wasn't yeah. like, since, uh, yeah. I've never heard of that. That's strange. <laughs> But this is black holes, <laughs> right. hepatitis C, like CRISPR-Cas9. Yeah. So uh, it's good to see that yeah, happening. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is indeed. Right. Yeah. Well, there there is another thing we want to go, or I want to mention before we go into the, not as an ordinary news item, because uh, who is surprised? But I think we need to mention that last month, September, was the warmest September on record ever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was hotter than last year and last year was hotter than 2016 so stop saying that we don't we're not seeing a trend here the only thing i could say that was positive about that news item is what that it came from a european project that we all mm -hmm. Uh, have heard of and uh, talked about before the Copernicus Climate Change Service, the C3S. I didn't know they had that abbreviation, but apparently that's how they want to do that. And to talk about Sweden again, because I have to, <laughs> the lead author of this report was uh, Freya Vamborg, who is actually a Swedish lady. Again, a woman. Very good. See. Sounds very Swedish. <laughs> yeah. So, Not to make it sound like a happy news, it is not happy news that uh, that we keep seeing the trend uh, of climate change. But um, well, that was actually the the topic of the uh, skeptics in the pub online thing we did in Sweden last week was about climate change denial. Mm, yeah, that's a thing. But you know, if we don't manage to handle this climate change situation, apparently, thanks to uh, mostly German researchers. Uh, who published a paper in the journal Astrobiology, uh, we, we might be able to find a better better place for ourselves than our current place where we live, the, the Earth. Okay, let me know. Yeah. Where can I buy my ticket? <laughs> yeah, that's the issue. That's the only issue with this, mm. which is a fascinating piece of research. They say that um, out of the 4,000 4, exoplanets that have so far been discovered, they could identify at least two dozen where uh, life might even be better off than on earth and uh, they they set up uh, a couple of criteria that they they base uh, their their whole uh, paper on and their their whole idea and obviously it's uh, the temperature which uh, has something to do with the how far it is from their uh, their parent star it's the the habitable zone it's also called the goldilocks zone and so what the surface temperature might be uh, what the size of the planet is uh, so gravity might play uh, some some kind of role and uh, with the temperature it comes Uh, that water might be present in a, in a liquid form. So those are all the criteria that we think of as uh, the, 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 the general criteria for life to, to exist somewhere. And um, obviously the, the pressure of the, the atmosphere is another factor. So those are all different factors that might indicate that life can thrive on a certain planet. So with these planets known and listed, we could... Uh, potentially focus our attention to, to to those and who knows if we achieve faster than light speeds of traveling through the universe <laughs> who knows but you have the feeling sometimes based on how slowly we're moving in this uh, task of handling climate change that it might be easier to get to a different planet than to solve the problem of this level 
uh, on a global uh, scale. I'm not sure so that I should be know. our plan A. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if we get there... Yeah, I agree. If, I agree. if we get there to one of these planets, uh, probably the situation is so good there that it's already occupied. Somebody's already staying there or living there. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah. maybe we are not so welcome. Yeah, you have to go forward. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we should fix this one. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's probably still a, a better idea. And among our news... Uh, there will be a couple of uh, very positive steps towards that uh, kind of future that we all want to see in that regard. But why don't we move on to our usual segments? And the first one of those is usually uh, some kind of a history. So we're looking back in the past, into the past. So visiting some kind of event that happened on this week in Skepticism. Yes. So I thought, because um, last time I spoke about events in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. I thought this time we might do something a tiny bit more modern. Okay. And that's why I decided to remind you of the 14th to 16th of October 2016. That's four years ago this week. <laughs> and that was um, when QED was moved from spring to autumn and happened in Manchester. Ooh, QED! <laughs> Yes, we should be there right now. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We should be there right now, but we're not. That's right. Damn, we should. (laughs) (laughs) And at this time, they had wonderful speakers like Susan Blackmore, Deborah Hyde, Britt Marie Hermes, uh, Michael Marshall, Cara Santa Maria, uh, Richard Wiseman, and many more. Many more of whom we also interviewed. Yeah, exactly. On the spot. Exactly. Yeah, like I'm, I'm pretty sure if if um, the listeners want want to remember that QED, they can also go back to the episodes that were partly mm-hmm. around that mm-hmm. date. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> and um, as always, they hand out the Ockham Award there. Um, I just want to make some honorable mentions of the Ockham Award through the years. Um, for example, Michael Marshall received an Ockham Award for his skeptical activism in 2018. That was the latest QED. And the ESPU, for example, received one too in seven, uh, 2017. Ooh. Yes. And for the listeners who might not know what QED is, it's one of the biggest skeptical conferences in Europe. It is pretty much UK-based, but it draws in a lot of people internationally. And... I'm pretty sure we'll we would all agree that we'll miss it this year immensely. Um, but for those who do miss it, you can still nominate people um, or organizations for the Occam Awards. So that might be something like a, a little bit of a band aid on the on the wound of missing QED this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even after th- this episode is released, you will still have more than two weeks to cast your vote. So. Yeah, yeah, plenty of time. Yeah, and we will put the link in the show notes if you want to nominate someone. Along with our link to the QED website. Of course. Which is yeah. the, the website of hope for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> the guiding light. Yeah, the guiding light. Yeah. Exactly. But just to make sure that the, the Occam Awards are not, they are usually handed out at QED, but they are actually awarded by the magazine The Skeptic, the UK yes. magazine The Skeptic. Yes, that's right. All right, that brought back very nice memories, Annika. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and moving on, I'm curious whether you've got something to poke the Pope for, Pontus, this week. Well, actually, we have, or I have, decided to give uh, the Pope uh, a rest this week. And, and maybe we will do that a little bit uh, in the future. We will save it for, for when we really have some juicy stuff on, on Frankie Boy Ooh. and uh, not do it maybe not every week. I mean, by having some juicy stuff on Frankie Boy, you, it doesn't necessarily mean that literally. <laughs> no, so, no, okay. no, absolutely okay. not. I kind of pictured that and I didn't like That's the That's your dirty mind thinking. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no. So uh, we will bring back uh, Francis and uh, put him against the wall when it uh, when he needs it. But uh, we will um, give him a rest this week anyway. Cool. Then it means that the next step in providing you with a complete show is the news. Yeah, and we're divorcing that uh, idea of uh, not having anything uh, COVID-related. But uh, but I'm still happy to report that this week uh, it's not it's not full of COVID related news. Do you remember that uh, on episode 180, 180 we interviewed Sander van der Linden? 
Oh, yes. Yeah, and he talked about uh, the so-called inoculation theory and the, the concept of pre-bunking. Yeah. That is basically the idea behind a game called Bad News, uh, developed by a group of researchers, including him and John Cook, whom we also interviewed on episode 210, by the way. <laughs> so the aim of the game was to help people develop the necessary skills to spot and resist fake news and misinformation. The success of that game has already been published in Nature, and despite some obvious limitations that the researchers themselves also acknowledge, which is quite um, a good position to start with, the results are quite compelling. This is one of the reasons uh, we have every reason to be happy about a new game that has the same goal, only more specifically focused on COVID-19 related stuff. Mm-hmm. It's called Go Viral. <laughs> <laughs> what a fitting name, right? And it's, it's a work of British and Dutch researchers, including the above-mentioned Sander van der Linden, who, by the way, heads the, the, the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab at the Department of uh, uh, Psychology at the University of Cambridge. Quite a prestigious place to run research from. So the, the game, Go Viral, is available to all online, and you can go through the basics in about five to ten minutes. Learning about how effective viral campaigns are constructed without even having any basis in scientific fact. I tried the game and I have to say it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to walk through and it will tell you if you're not choosing the right path to go down. Because if your virality factor is not good enough, then the program will tell you that, oh, you didn't choose the right thing. You, you were too modest or you were you, <laughs> you didn't choose what you, ha- you would uh, have to. So it walks you through the steps of building up credibility online. And it has a, a reach counter that shows you how well you're doing in spreading bullshit effectively. And uh, previous studies with the aforementioned bad news game indicated that showing people what the most effective techniques of deception are can lead to them being more critical towards news they consume online and reject bullshit especially if they haven't formed a strong opinion based on misinformation yet if they have the task at hand is much more difficult of course i think i expressed how impressed i was uh, with the idea of mental inoculation during the the interviews with sandra and john cook but i cannot emphasize enough how important these kind of, of mental crutches are well done and of course we'll share the link to the game on our show notes and i hope that uh as many people will reach for it as possible uh we should we should probably try to do uh some spreading of of the word on our respective national organizations uh websites and facebook pages as well because a lot of people especially in your country pontus there are a lot of people talking uh, speaking very good english they understand everyone understands and speaks english in your country which Mm. is mind-blowing to me at least where hungarians are not very much like that so well done and i think it's it's really a must for every skeptic out there to check it out definitely (laughs) yeah and and from going to from very good ideas and very good news um i have to bring the mood down a bit i'm sorry Um, because several surveys show that in different countries many young people still lack basic knowledge about the holocaust was that did you just ask what the holocaust was Andres? yes it was a very <laughs> bad attempt at a joke uh, sorry about that <laughs> i'm german i can't laugh about that i'm sorry no but um Many young people in the UK, um, but also in other countries, learn about the Holocaust in school and are also curious about the topic. Mm-hmm. But the studies show that um, the knowledge and the actual understanding of the topic are often limited and full of inaccuracies and misconceptions. And the Holocaust is meant as a mandatory topic in the curriculum of the UK, as well as other European countries. I don't know, is, is it mandatory in uh, in Hungary or in Sweden? Oh, oh yes. it's Of course, it's part of the curriculum. Yeah, it is. And I remember, I mean, part of this problem, maybe you get to that, but part of the problem now is that it's becoming so long ago that people who survived it are not around yeah. anymore to tell about it. I remember when I was, I think, in fifth grade, we had a um, Holocaust survivor coming into class and spent uh, a couple of hours discussing it and talking about his uh, memories of it and how, what had happened and made a huge impress- impression of me. And that cannot happen in schools nowadays anymore because 
those who survived are now too old or or yeah. dead yeah yeah they just get more on like they're just very rare now yeah. yeah that's something that like i as a history teacher also run into um at times and the other thing in germany actually is that because we have a certain um guilt uh with the holocaust uh is that in in germany it's not only taught in history it's in a lot of um subjects not not always mandatory but it still will be taught in a lot of subjects and what can happen then is something that should never 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 happen with the holocaust and that is that for the children who don't actually get how important that is it will become a tedious topic mm-hmm. yeah and that's what also like very very bad really? <laughs> and it's 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 very counterproductive yes. if you think about it that they don't really get why they have to deal with all this yeah and to be honest i kind of understand that in a way that uh i've i've always thought that germany in its current state with the current citizens of the country should not be governed by that kind of guilt because it was three generations ago yeah so for how long should i have to suffer for my ancestors terrible deeds yeah. i don't know it's probably not necessarily a good idea and uh, obviously it can lead to a strengthening of the far right right as well yeah this kind of pushback yeah yeah serious exactly and, and it's like it should never be forgotten but it's just important to change uh, the conversation about it i guess and to yeah. to change the didactics about it and that's also like something that the survey showed because apparently not only students but also educators lack understanding of the topic mm-hmm. and the article puts it down to the vagueness of the curriculum especially in the uk they said um because it's heavily like what what the students actually will receive is heavily dependent on the actions of the individual teachers um so for example there are support clubs or support unions there but they're voluntary uh-huh. so it really totally depends on the teacher if if they can um create empathy uh, or if they if they treat it as any other topic and it's it's very inconsistent at at times and um as i said before there's also like the didactics really have to change because there's a huge disconnection in uh like between academic research and teaching practice which is not a uk problem but i guess a probably a global problem hmm. and the problem there is that education especially about these important um topics can't remain static it has to change yeah and that's also very difficult because it's like a huge ship it's a very slow system <laughs> to to change yeah, <laughs> yeah but I, I i think it's very hard to try to keep it relevant i think a lot of it is young children today feel it that it's just as relevant as the napoleonic wars i mean so far back nobody it's you know it's important but blah 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 there are, there are other things to do. but the important thing is that it's still happening yes once in a while you, we know what happened in 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 the balkans yeah when that when, what happened there we know what happened in africa in rwanda and there are other examples it can happen again and it does occasionally happen again yeah and we really need to yeah to remember this and make sure that it is not forgotten as you said Annika and uh, th- yeah. there is a feeling exactly. that that often finds me about this and uh, that is that why we need to be educated in a proper way about this is because we have to recognize it at its very early stage yeah before it happens really when yeah. it starts happening <laughs> and and it yeah. doesn't have necessarily have to be anything like yeah. the holocaust itself so it can be something much milder much much less violent yeah. than the holocaust yeah. uh look at what's going on in the us uh with trump it could have been stopped yeah. this phenomenon that led to the election of trump it could have been stopped the same with our orban yeah. he could have been stopped 10 years ago when he won that election people really believed him even though it was obvious based on his his previous political acts as a prime minister between 1998 and 2002 it was quite obvious what he would do if he got into power again and a lot of people just didn't choose to see that mm. oh they couldn't i don't really know what what the reason was but it could have been stopped and it wasn't 
So this is why we should be educated about this. But yeah. uh, as Pontus said, I, I really agree with that, that uh, it's just too far. It's already too far from our own problems, our own previous, even our previous generation. I just think there's still a lot, like, A, of course, there's a lot to um, remember. Yeah. Remember the victims, for example. And there's also a lot we can still learn from that. Because the moment you start, like, othering uh, a group of people, or the moment you use vocabulary like um, vermin or something, this is already not like this is already a step towards the Holocaust or like a genocide. So this is just like even even words like you can even learn from the Holocaust that you have to be careful with yeah. with mm-hmm. um, yeah. words like that. And political agendas can adjust their political their historical views as well uh, based on what what their needs are. The aforementioned Orban, his governing party now uh, tries to play down the Holocaust. So they're not they're not denying that the Holocaust happened. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. But they try to play down, and there is a certain amount of revisionism, uh, historical revisionism that's going on, and that includes bringing back those times when our country was governed by someone who went into bed with uh, Hitler. Mm. And they they try to make him a hero. They claim that uh, Horty went against Hitler as long as he could. Well, there are certain things that uh, show otherwise. uh, But still, they try to make make a hero out of him. And uh, that's concerning. But I have to say with things like that, or like with Germany, for example, still renaming streets because they discovered like, ooh, that was actually not a very good general in the army for oh, yeah. Hitler <laughs> or something like that. Well, like that still shows that, that the topic is, is still alive. Yes, it's, it's very, very long ago. And it doesn't have like direct mm, impact yeah, okay. anymore, but it's yeah. it's still there. All right. Yeah. All right. That that's a, that's a heavy topic. Well, so let's go on to something a little bit more lighter, even if it's well. Let's see if it's good or bad news, <laughs> because this headline caught my interest this week. Uh, in Norway, they have changed the law so that after first of January next year, it will be okay to sell homeopathy in regular stores. Hey. I, I must first say that I. At first, I, I, I took it the wrong way because I thought that was a bad thing. And then I started to thinking, so no, because, I, you know, you say, no, don't sell homeopathy. But, but then I realized it's actually a good change because today you can only sell homeopathy in real pharmacies, which gives it a legitimacy that it doesn't deserve. So it's actually good that you get it out. I mean, of course, you cannot... Sp- it's hard to stop the uh, sales of sugar pills. What you can stop is uh, claims that is not backed up by science. So get it. I'm sorry. This is candy. Sell it in the regular stores. That's a good thing. The next step is to not sell it in the pharmacies anymore. <laughs> I don't know if and when that will happen, but it's good in a way because it takes away the special status that homeopathy has had until now in Norway, which indicates that it's a, it's real medicine. And it's not. It is only sugar pills. It is sugar pills. But I've got a question. Yep. Is it going to be marketed as over-the-counter medicine or as some kind of food supplement or something? Okay, that I don't know. But I the news didn't say anything in changing the marketing rules. So this is up okay. to... I don't know what the, the current marketing rules are in Norway. I would hope and I tend to believe that they are fairly sensible, that you don't... Mm-hmm. Because I think it's more like more or less like Sweden. You cannot make claims that you can't really back up with science. But uh, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but putting it in, you know, in the normal... 7-Eleven, that, that sort of takes away a little bit of the special aura of, of being a, a real medicine. Okay. In a lot of countries, you can buy a lot of over-the-counter medicine at stores, mm. uh, larger stores. So I'm not sh- I, I don't know what the situation is uh, with regards to that in Norway. Um, but w- what is the situation in, in um, Sweden? Now, in Sweden, you can since since about like a ten years or so. I think it was you can sell you can sell simple medications in in, in normal stores like mm. headache pills, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of thing. I would assume it's the same in Norway, but I don't know. Okay, 
in Germany you actually can't like you can buy some like um, mm -hmm. herbal teas that they call like medicinal but not really medicine and you can buy like yeah. um, disinfectant <laughs> or stuff like that but you can't actually buy um, like headache mm -hmm. uh, medication or painkillers from shops you have to go to an actual pharmacy to do that mm. you have to go to a pharmacy yes but there's actually also a pharmacy in germany where the owner decided to not sell any homeopathy anymore it's um iris hundertmark and um like she really made um waves i think we talked about that on the show i don't remember when it was but yeah yeah, mm. yeah. i'm wondering because as far as i know there is some kind of a binding legislation behind pharmacies having to to offer the opportunity for you to buy homeopathic medicine or homeopathic products let's not call them medicine so i think that might be the case but i should have looked it up i recognize that too. i'm not sure i recognized having heard that too yeah huh. yeah so um that should probably be so i'm not sure how legally correct that that step was from that part of pharma, on that pharmacist part but i i certainly welcome the, the decision <laughs> yeah and yeah legislation should be changed uh the eu legislation on that front oh yes definitely yeah of course there are also attempts on from the other side to uh legitimize homeopathy <laughs> of course so it's it's not only us trying to get it out but others are trying to keep it in so I've pretty much got three articles by our dear friend Edzard Ernst, <laughs> who uh, talked about three different um, studies um, slash essays. <laughs> and there was, for example, a study that homeopathy prolongs survival of uh, lung can cancer patients. And as you can imagine, that sounds too good to be actually true, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but what Edzard Ernst said is the study is actually underpowered and probably also unethical because the patients apparently didn't receive immuno-oncological therapy. Wow. Only homeopathy. Aye. So, Jesus. yeah. And it also seemed to not have been peer-reviewed, which shows you how hmm. great the study is. Then there was also an essay written about evidence, in air quotes, um, that was found that homeopathy works for treating infections in people and animals. But what um, Professor Ernst found out is that they cherry-picked other studies and had no intention in actually working objectively or systematically. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much a misleading review. Mm. And the third study slash review he mentioned is there was said that children receiving homeopathy from birth were healthier and had less problems, less allergies, no asthma, no dermatitis. But what Edzard Ernst found out is that they don't refer to an actual study. They just refer to a brochure for homeopathy. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. That looks a bit like a study, but is actually a brochure. Oh, that old trick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there um, were apparently two, um, two groups. One was the control group. Um, but we don't learn how many variables were tested in the study mm. and if there was a selection bias of the groups. The homeopathy group could have been uh, more health conscious or younger or something like that. It's the only comparison they make is that the size is the same of the group. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. That's very, very solid. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So like, that's what Edzard Ernst is like. This is a prime example for pseudo-research. Uh, <laughs> this is not actually a study that proves that homeopathy is, uh, is successful yeah, that's right. and effective. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, so so just the numbers are the same. So here we have <laughs> an X number of patients, and here we have the same number of mushrooms, and now we're going to compare the two. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so like this just shows you again, homeopathy doesn't work beyond the placebo effect. Yeah. But if you're interested in hearing a lot of numbers, I've got a lot of them for you. <laughs> I think we didn't report back in September on a very important survey of 20,000 adults from 27 countries that was conducted by Ipsos on behalf of the World Economic Forum. So they found that 74% of the respondents globally would get vaccinated if a COVID-19 jab was available. So that's quite good, right? It sounds quite good. 74, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I have to say, though, that uh, among those, so there are a couple of countries that really pull those numbers up, including uh, China, where 98% of the respondents said that, oh, of course, I would, I would get a vaccination. 
and there were massive differences between countries, both in terms of potential uptake and, of course, the reasons behind the, the answers and the belief that it would be available before the end of this year. To my disappointment, although it, I have to say it didn't really come as a surprise, Hungary was among the countries with the lowest levels of, of willingness to, to go through with a vaccination, with a mere 56% of respondents giving a positive answer. 56. Only Poland and Russia did worse, uh, with 56% and 54% um, respectively. France was the other country in the, in the below 60 team. All of the other European countries included in the survey uh, came back with at least two-thirds of respondents being willing to vaccinate. So that's quite positive, I think. But it's still below the global average. When asked about the reasons for not wanting to vaccinate, most of the respondents, 56% on average, were worried about the side effects. And around 30% of them doubted the effectiveness of any vaccine made available sometime in the future. But the largest variation in responses were shown in thinking that one is not enough at risk from COVID-19. So people thinking that they're not enough at risk and as a consequence not wanting to vaccinate. And among those, Sweden leads the charts by far among European countries with 35% of people responding uh, like that. And outright anti-vaccination sentiment seems to dominate a few European states like Italy, Russia and France, between 20 and 30% of the respondents subscribing to that sentiment that vaccination is bad in general. So that's quite high. And in conclusion to this part of what I wanted to tell you about, I think some of these countries are really not doing a good enough job explaining things to the people. Uh, or it, it could be, in defense of the governments, that they have not focused very much on a potential vaccination while there is none available. But the numbers clearly show that there is work to be done if we want to avoid risking too low levels of uptake. And thus, of course, not reaching the desired herd immunity levels. Part of that job and task is understanding the reasons why people feel the way they do and making sure the messages are clearly communicated regarding risks and benefits. Another important factor to take into account might be that if people had to pay for the jab, it could be a massive inhibitor of large-scale uptake, of course. So I'm really hopeful that governments all over the world realize that and, and, and make the vaccination available for free to everyone. Now, when it comes to my concerns, a more recent representative survey is what keeps me up at night. And that was published also by Ipsos only a couple of days ago, but focusing only on Hungary. The focus of this survey was somewhat different. It was more about understanding the results of the one from back in September. And they asked people about their willingness to pay for a jab as well, if that was the only option. It doesn't really come as a surprise that uh, only 12% of the respondents would do that. Uh, so this indicates cl quite clearly that it should not be available only upon payment. No, no, yeah. we have to make it free. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but what is concerning is that this time it was 46% who would not vaccinate at all, while 12% is either undecided or refused to answer. Mm. Now, that is a lot. That shows that only 42% of adults in Hungary would definitely take a vaccine against COVID-19 if it was available, yeah. either upon payment or not. And it seems like among people under 50 years of age, it's even lower, only 36%. So that shows that younger people don't really feel like they need the vaccination. It's it's more like the elderly people who understand the necessity. Uh, and I, I don't think the two surveys are directly comparable, but there is a chance for a trend emerging here. And that is really cause for concern, in my opinion. And actually, based on how strong the voices of pandemic deniers have become lately in, in the country, in Hungary, and how many people suffer from the consequences of the lockdown that started in the spring... I can easily see a connection here. And I'd like to mention something here which I find very concerning and it's happening all over the world, that these people, the deniers, call themselves skeptics. They call themselves vaccination skeptics. They call themselves yeah. uh, virus skeptics and pandemic skeptics. And it shouldn't be that way. That gives them a certain level of legitimacy that should not be given to them. They are deniers. 
Yes. They deny all the scientific facts and that shouldn't be happening. They're not doing critical thinking. <laughs> yes. And skeptics, the, the word skeptic is and has always been difficult for the public to accept because there is a certain bad connotation to it. Like that the back of their minds, people think very badly about skeptics because they are the ones who who question everything and they deny stuff. But it's not true. So we've come a long way uh, trying to educate the public about scientific skepticism and we should not give the name skeptic to these deniers all over the world about everything. And it happens in Hungary currently and we're trying to focus on that. We, we, we try to bring the attention of uh, those who fight against these deniers uh, to the fact that skepticism is different. Now, going back to the, the situation in Hungary, I have to add that the government, and, and sorry for just grabbing the opportunity again to bash our government, but um, in the current situation, they are playing politics again instead of uh, of helping out its citizens, the country's citizens. There are experts speaking up against uh, the measures taken or or the complete lack thereof. Uh, to be honest, even experts that are supposed to be in the COVID-19 task forces uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, they were uh, introduced as members of the task forces. And now it's quite obvious that no one listens to their uh, expert advice, uh, no matter what they say. The decisions are not based on that expert advice. The testing capacity, for example, cannot keep up with the current rate of spreading of the virus, which is clearly shown by the fact that uh, from under 1% over the summer, the rate of positive results among all the tests taken has risen above 30%. So that's quite a change in a matter of weeks only. So there is no clear communication about what to do. The quarantining decisions are absolutely hectic. There is a lack of any professional consistency. It's total chaos. So no wonder people doubt even the existence of, a, of an epidemic when their government is clearly not to be trusted. So perfect times to be Hungarian now, actually. But uh, I, I wanted to share this story so that people can try and learn from it. All right. I didn't mean to bring down the mood completely. <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> we both were just like... Mm. So anything fun around to talk about? Right. Okay. Let's, let's take something really lighthearted now then. That okay. doesn't okay. really affect the world or That's impending doom or anything like that. <laughs> it's just a legend that is coming back always and that will just never die. Last year, there was a DNA investigation in, uh, of the wildlife in Loch Ness. Yeah, that was cool. Which was reported as... Scientists look for Nessie using, using DNA, exclamation point, which was, of course, not at all what it was all about. And we gave that a really wrong in episode 187. Oh, that's right. We did. OK. But now Nessie is back in the news because there was a new sighting. There was a new image taken reported as, quote, 100 percent genuine, end quote. And it was produced not by a camera, but by a sonar device from a boat full of tourists. The picture indicates a very definite blob. <laughs> not very convincing to me. It's about 10 <laughs> meters in di diameter. So that's fairly big. It's near the bottom of the of the loch. Uh, but I, I think that's a little bit disappointing, is it? 10 meters? I would want my Nessie to be much bigger. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess it's sizable for an animal. It has to be a whale size. Yeah, I th I, yeah. <laughs> give me a blue whale or something like that. Yeah, yeah 10, 10 meters can be a blue whale if it's um, uh, not an adult. Baby. Uh, ba baby a baby blue whale. Blue whale. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Baby, baby blue whale. So, but what is bigger, of course, is the hype. And I think it's quite telling that a betting site took the bait and uh, immediately made sure that the, the news about finding Nessie included all the odds of finding Nessie before the end of the year and what would happen to it when we find it, etc, etc. So uh, it illustrates, of course, perfectly that what Nessie is really all about, and that is about making money on speculation exactly. uh, and on people's imagination. And uh, drawing tourists, <laughs> I, I guess, as well. But nowadays, that's a little bit harder. But yeah, at least there was this boat with tourists on, on, the, on the loch. So um, I, I guess some people still go 
on tourist tours. Although I have to say, if there was any year that Nessie could be discovered, it would be 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Without, without is, all the disturbance. Yeah. No, no, no. It's the, the other way around. This is the year when Nessie finally decides to make an appearance and there's nobody around to see him, her. her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's more like it. But yeah. imagine... Imagine that situation with the with a boat full of tourists, or probably not not that full, but a um, lot of tourists on the boat, and the guy driving the boat just seeing the blob on the sonar and exhaling very loudly and saying that something is going on and people getting so excited. I can imagine that that scene quite easily. <laughs> it's probably like what happened as well. Yeah. Yeah, but, but but what's phenomenal about about the whole Nessie thing is how a whole area around the lake can can make a living out of a pr- most probably non-existent creature. Yeah. It's, it's it's amazing how people operate. Good marketing. <laughs> it yeah. is yes. <laughs> All right, another. Actually, it's not it's not very lighthearted. It's it's a very deep and very uh, uh, serious issue, but very positive as well. So um, you probably all remember that um, last week. I was very hard on the European Commission for trying to apply a carbon dioxide accounting trick yeah. to, to the deal with the EU's net zero challenge in, in line with the Paris Accord. So that was uh, that was last week. And if you remember, I called on people to, to contact their MEPs to vote those proposed changes down and stick to the already ambitious 55% uh, reduction on emissions by 2030, right? Well, I'm, I'm afraid my rant had nothing to do with this, or at least not much. But the European Parliament did even more than what I asked for when they put the new EU climate law proposed by the Commission to vote <laughs> on the 7th of October. They adopted a mandate that raises the target even further to an insanely ambitious 60% by 2030. And that is, of course, compared to 1990 levels of carbon dioxide emissions. So it was carried with 392 votes in favour and 161 against, with uh, 142 abstentions. They also proposed an interim target for 2040 in order to be able to check on the progress en route to the 2050 complete carbon neutrality. It sounds so good, by the way. I, I just love saying carbon neutrality. It's uh, <laughs> It feels good to say it. And as part of the legislation, EU member states have to phase out all fossil fuel subsidies as well by the end of 2025. So we're talking five years from now. Quite ambitious. Now, that is both reasonable with the interim targets clearly set and ambitious, as it will be quite a challenge for some countries uh, like Poland, for example, uh, where um, coal is, they, their energy sector depends very much on coal. Now, I would say these are things that make me proud to be European. However, the reality will probably be much less glamorous, especially if we consider what needs to be done before this becomes a binding law for EU member states. Because now comes the stage where 27 European Council members, well, that means state leaders, have to negotiate and make a decision on the proposed law by a qualified majority, which in this case means 72% of the member states, representing 65% of the overall population of the EU. So that's quite a challenge if we want to achieve that. And if the proposed law in its current state cannot get that majority, it will lead to further negotiations with the EP, so if that's the case, further changes are to be expected in this proposed law. Just think about countries, as I mentioned, like Poland, where coal is very widely used for producing, producing electricity, but Bulgaria and Germany are also among those with large population sizes and lots of fossil fuels used, especially with Germany phasing out nuclear, right? Mm. Uh, yep. <laughs> that is quite a challenge. Well done, guys. And we're still subsidizing coal until 2030, apparently, so... Oh, fuck. Yeah, well, that might have to change. If that if this law passes, then this might have to change. The only thing in favor of uh, Germany voting down this uh, 2025 phasing out of subsidies is that Germany has a massive population. So it's one seventh of I no, I think it's one fifth of the the whole of the European Union, the number of inhabitants. So 
I actually have a feeling that the reason why the EP proposed this very high target is to have a margin for negotiations. It very well may be. Well, we'll see, but it's certainly quite a treat to see something like this happen in the EU. To have this little moment of pride, even if we suspect that it won't last long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I have to say there is more reason uh, to be optimistic because there were some noble actions done by Prince William and Sir David Attenborough. And um, I hope you noticed my pun there. (laughs) (laughs) So... Because, um, yeah, Prince William and Sir David Attenborough joined forces on the Earthshot Prize. And now you might ask, like, what's the Earthshot Prize? Well, it's a prize where they're searching for 50 solutions to um, the world's environmental problems um, until 2030. And they have a price budget of 50 million pounds. Wow. So it's... It's planned to be the biggest environmental prize, um, and they wanted to do that to create positivity within the climate debate. Good. They said it is an urgent topic, but uh, they said they need to bring together urgency and optimism because pessimism stifles uh, innovation and stifles ideas. And they want to um, give the prize uh, to innovative projects. Prince William said that the world is at a tipping point right now and the planet, of course, needs to be saved. It's a life and death issue. And they want to look at topics like uh, clean our air, revive our oceans, um, a waste-free world, protect and restore nature or fix our climate eventually. So now you might ask, who can apply? Well, the cool thing is everybody can apply everybody around the whole world so it's very much like the the moonshot prize right so it's uh it's and the name comes from that i i suppose yeah yeah exactly they named it after the moonshot yeah, yeah, yeah. good exactly really good and they pl- they plan uh, to be an annual award ceremony so um every time for the next 10 years and so david attenborough and Prince William want to be ambassadors mm-hmm. of the whole thing. And do we know where the funding for that comes from? I didn't see yet, okay. but I mean, I'll, I'll look that up and I'll tell you about it next week. Okay, yeah, <laughs> okay. good. So this means uh, Hattenborough is going; he's planning to stay around for another ten years, being active. Good for him. Good for him. I think he's. I think we're 90, all, all is in he? favor of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah and ninety-three. Oh 93. boy. <laughs> uh, I think I think going on ninety four. Wow. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> yeah, so well now he has to stay. <laughs> yes, now he has a good motivation to stick around. Yeah, he's he's almost exactly the same age as the queen. Mm. Well, she will never die then. So so <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. And I think that has been all the news items that we wanted to share with our listeners. So moving on to the next, where we will find out who's been really wrong lately. Well, silly me. I was under the impression that creationism and denial of evolution didn't exist in Sweden or in Scandinavia. I, uh, I mean, how could it be here? Nobody here believes in God. At least um, that's what I thought. And I was wrong, of course. You've been really wrong about it. I was really wrong. <laughs> uh, it was wishful thinking and me just living in a bubble. Because in the September issue of the Journal of Theoretical Biology... That belongs to that big uh, publishing uh, company, El Sevier. Mm-hmm. There was a paper published uh, with the pithy name of, quote, using statistical methods to model the fine tuning of molecular machines and systems, end quote. The, I'll get back to what it's all about. <laughs> the authors were a Norwegian professor of information science called Steinar Torvaldsen and a Swedish mathematician called Ola Höscher. They are from the University of Tromsø, Norway, and uh, the University of Stockholm in Sweden, respectively. Now, I haven't personally analyzed the paper in detail, but it's it's still, as of this recording at least, still online. And uh, it's not behind a paywall, so points for that. But that means that it's available to everyone, which it's is a- not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> no, but we <laughs> that's right. But we do enjoy we do we are <coughs> fans of open access, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right? right. Yeah. But three researchers from uh, the School of Biological Sciences in uh, of the Georgia Institute of Technology in the United States have written a rebuttal of the paper. 
Uh, and that's a good thing, because already in the abstract of the paper you will find this sentence, quote, This paper describes molecular fine-tuning, how it can be used in biology, and how it challenges conventional Darwinian thinking, end quote. So, oh, that's a, that's a big red flag there. I, I think, actually, I, I do think I know what they're after with the term molecular fine-tuning, even if it was a term I hadn't encountered before. If I've understood it correct, they argue that it cannot be a coincidence that all the molecules in a biological entity work so well together. In fact, they make an effort to go through the, the whole etymology of the word design because it is used casually by biologists too. And to these guys, anything that is designed means that it has to have a creator. Somebody has to have designed it. So, therefore, God. And then they throw a lot. Of, one of the guys is a mathematician. So I said that. So one. So they throw a lot of maths uh, on these very fine-tuned relationships that they have found between proteins uh, to convince us that this cannot be chance. This cannot be a random coincidence. And then, if anybody didn't get the hint, uh, they spell it out. Quote: Intelligent design. ID has gained a lot of interest and attention in recent years, mainly in the US. And then later on they say, ID, which then is intelligent design, aims to adhere to the same standards of rational investigation as other scientific and philosophical enterprises, and it is subject to the same methods of evaluation and critique, end quote. So do you agree with that? Of course, yeah. Of course. <laughs> no. Full-heartedly. So, just to make sure everybody follows here, intelligent design is just a new name for creationism. And creationism is, of course, exactly. the idea that everything has been designed by a creator. And um, no, intelligent design cannot be said to have uh, be the subject of the same methods of evaluation and critique uh, as other scientific and philosophical enterprises. That's nonsense. But I also have to say it's like the argument with the molecules is also not completely correct. No. Because like, yeah. no, they don't always work in harmony in everybody. <laughs> exactly. No, that's right. It sometimes goes horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah. And... Uh, so it, it's, a, it's an argument from incredulity as well, if we want to go to logical fallacies. fallacies because I can't believe that all of this has just appeared out of random and uh, that it works so well. So therefore, it cannot be true. Uh, but I'm shocked that in my part of the world, <laughs> there still exists on university level, grown up real people with professor to their name, uh, who spend time on this kind of nonsense. But there, there is one light here, one thing that's good with the story, and that is that the group who wrote the rebuttal uh, that they wrote ended with this commentary, quote, In the words of Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, a threshold that is not met in this paper, end quote. <laughs> So I always love it when people quote Carl Sagan. It's such a, a, a good uh, good quote, and it's never been more applicable than to this stupid paper. Definitely. Yeah. So there is no way that this paper gets gets um, withdrawn or retracted. Uh, well, actually, I hope it will be, but as of today, it is not there. Okay. But Retraction Watch has has taken it up and actually given a big hint to the paper, say, hey, are you sure you don't want to retract this? You might want to think But about they haven't it. yet. They haven't yet. Okay. All right. Uh, so I downloaded it just in case, so make sure that I have it for future <laughs> reference. Future mocking. Uh, well, actually, usually, usually if it's available, then you might be able to access it later as well. Uh, you're right. It will say that it's retracted. Yeah, yeah, right. It should have a red stamp saying yeah. this has been retracted, but they don't delete it. You're right. You're quite right. So, to these professors for writing this bullshit and uh, even more to the journal for not uh, only allowing this and also, as I said, as of this recording, they haven't retracted the paper yet. They all get a big, really wrong award, which was, with some intelligence, designed by the ESP. <laughs> very good. All right, good one. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you.
Hello, Richard Saunders here from the Skeptic Zone podcast, a podcast for science and reason from Australia. Every week since 2008, the Skeptic Zone has brought you reports, interviews, and investigations from all around the world. We have many listeners all through Europe. That's the Skeptic Zone podcast at www.skepticzone.tv. Crop circles are so intricate and complex, it is not possible for humans to make them. You're not really getting the complete holistic birth experience unless you eat your placenta. I mean, animals do it, and Mother Nature always knows best. Of course the world is haunted by ghosts and demons. It explains so much so easily that I barely have to do any thinking. I've watched a whole lot of Flat Earth videos on YouTube. You know, they convinced me. It's all a conspiracy. There's no way we live on a spinning ball. We all have friends and family who believe these things, and much more. Well, if you're a rational thinker who is tired of arguing on social media and never getting anywhere, we have a solution for you. Join the Gorilla Skepticism on Wikipedia team, and we will teach you how to add reliable scientific and skeptical information to the world's number one source of information, Wikipedia. We write new articles and improve existing ones. We remove pseudoscience, paranormal, and alt-med claims, substituting the actual facts. And we operate in many languages. We've already reached tens of millions of people searching for information, but, as you can imagine, we can never do enough. So please join us. All you need is a PC and the desire to help educate the planet. In fact, you'll be educating the world while you sleep. Contact us at gsowteam at gmail.com. Gorilla Skepticism. The time is now. Music by purpleplanet.com. That has been all that we wanted to cover this week on this show. And that means that the last thing that uh, we have to do before we go is give you a quote. And the quote comes from a guy you probably all have heard of him. Heard of him. Uh, his name was Leona, Leonardo da Vinci. Fleetingly, yeah. Yeah, we used to be buddies, <laughs> but it doesn't call me back anymore. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I think he went to sleep a long, long ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> I think you shouldn't always do the thing with the glasses on the table, Pontius. <laughs> yeah, and, he's, and by the way, he's very famous for disappearing when uh, someone wants something from him. Ah, so that's yeah. the case. Then. <laughs> but the quote is. Those who fall in love with practice without science are like a sailor who enters a ship without a helm or a compass and who never can be certain whither he is going. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, very good. Science, really. Yes. Good. <laughs> yeah, it's your compass. Good old Leonardo. So, with that, I'd like to close the show and thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I would also like to uh, thank our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. And until next week, goodbye. Hello. Tschüss. Bis This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Go ahead, chipmunk away. <laughs> okay. Um... Ha <laughs> <laughs>
That could work. That could we'll be see. that could be the new spot for the <laughs> for the skeptic zone. <laughs> Hello, this is the ESP, the Europe, uh, the ECP, the European Chipmunk Podcast. <laughs> the real chipmunk experience. <laughs> the, the, the real chipmunk experience. Clap along if you see that happen. <clears throat> Sorry. As you can imagine, that sounds too good to be actually true, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, my Siri just reacted to that. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. We all love that when that, when that happens. I was just like, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I was under the impression that creationism... Creationism... <laughs> <laughs> you sounded like Sean Connery. <laughs> creationism. Creationism. And I wish Pontus. Pontus creationism. <laughs> oh, <that's it. laughs> Hilarious. Okay. Okay. <laughs>